ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. millimetres in a 50 kilogram container which is I guess a bit like a, a squat LPG cylinder that you have at the back of your house. For the second time this year authorities are searching high and low for a missing piece of radioactive material. Back in January when a radioactive capsule was lost along a 1,400 kilometre stretch of Outback Highway in WA it took six days of frantic searching to find the tiny capsule just eight millimetres long. And now on South Australia's Air Peninsula the hunt is back on. But this time around, authorities have been searching for three weeks already and still no luck. Well, how do you lose something that big? That is exactly what we're asking, one still. <laughs> Coming up, we'll get the details of the hunt for another very small piece of radioactive material. I'm Alex Hyman and this is Australia Wide. Coming to you from Wadjuk Country, Perth. Just a week after the investigation wrapped up looking into the loss of that tiny radioactive capsule in the WA outback, a radioactive piece of material is missing now at a steelworks at Wyala on South Australia's Air Peninsula, prompting an investigation by authorities. Reporter Angus Randall has been following this. Angus, how did this radioactive material go missing? Yes, so this one is quite a different story to what was going on in WA earlier in the year. Uh, this is on a steelworks site at Wyala in the Air Peninsula. And from what we understand, there's obviously a little bit of information that's not clear because they don't quite know how it all went missing. But it's believed that there's been a bit of a clear out at the site. They've been getting rid of a bunch of stuff. And this tiny, tiny piece of radioactive material is inside sort of a big drum and it sounds like that drum may have possibly been thrown out into a, a waste site on the steelworks site uh, where it definitely should not have been thrown out and uh, they've now realised that's the case. So it sounds like someone's probably going to be going through the trash to try and find it. So what exactly has gone missing? What does it look like? It's a tiny, tiny, it's a few millimetres. It's sort of, I guess, similar to what, what happened in WA. It's a cobalt, cobalt 60 radioactive source, only a few millimetres long, but it's in a massive sort of 50 kilogram container. I've heard it described as, you know, the, the, the kind of LPG gas tank you might have at the back of your house or, you know, a big, big drum. So that's meaning that it is somewhat easier to find than trying to find, a, I guess, a literal needle in a haystack. But the problem is it's actually harder to track it down using radiation, you know, tracking devices because it's safely ensconced in that drum, which makes it, uh, I guess, harder to, to track because it is less, radia uh, less radioactive. So what then is being done to find it? What can they do? Well, they're pretty sure that it hasn't left the steelworks site, which is pretty good news. So uh, the steelworks site is just on the outskirts of Wyala, and they're pretty confident it didn't hasn't left. So we're not going to have, you know, the, the people in radio radiation suits walking along a highway like there was in WA. Um, but I believe they'll they'll keep searching through these um, through these waste sites and hopefully they'll find the drum. Obviously, if if it has actually left the drum, then we're gonna have a, a much bigger issue and a much bigger safety issue. But I believe they'll just be trying to find, sort of looking through the rubbish like when you're trying to find something at home but on a slightly more uh, risky scale. Why does the steelworks need this radioactive material? It's kind of remarkable how many uh, places around the country use 
radioactive material or at least very, very small amounts of it. So you can use it in mining. A lot of medical sites have it. In this case, it's used um, to, to measure things in the steelworks. It's, it gets very, very technical, um, but it was part of a gauge used to, to measure the steel in an industrial bin. Um, so uh, it's, I guess it's sort of used to measure weight um, from what I understand, it's a very technical piece, but it is it is the first question. You might think, why on earth are we putting radioactive material in steel? We're definitely not putting it in the steel. It's more used as some sort of measuring device in this drum. Uh, it's about 35 years old. So it was getting to, I believe, near the end of its life anyway. The authorities have said it's about a hundredth of the uh, radiation that it had 35 years ago. Um, so that's obviously good news as part of the search. But yeah, it, it's used in some form of the steelworks uh, process and uh, they'll hopefully be able to find it soon. When that small radioactive capsule went missing in the Pilbara, it made international headlines. There was great concern from the authorities over the potential danger of the material, even though it was in the remote outback. What have authorities said about the risk here? Certainly, if I was living in Wyala, I can imagine seeing the headline radioactive material missing in Wyala, and I would be quite concerned. But here, the there is a very, very uh, minimal reason for concern for anyone who's who lives in the town, and even for those at the steelworks, because the radiation from this tiny piece of cobalt sixty has reduced quite significantly, and also we you know, have reason, strong reason to believe it's still in that drum, so it's giving off even less radiation than it would be if it was essentially out in the wild. So I think, you know, it, it won't make as many international headlines as the WA incident because ultimately they will hopefully at some point find this on the, the Steelworks site in Wyala. Are they feeling confident? <laughs> uh, you'll be surprised to know that when anyone is talking about uh, nuclear or radioactive material, they don't give the game away a great deal. Um, so I believe, I'm sure we'll find out about it, but uh, we didn't find out about this for a couple of weeks. It's, it was mis- it's been missing for a little while. So uh, secrecy is the order of the day. I'm not sure how long it will be, but I, I think we'll have a, hopefully have some news in the next few weeks as someone has to essentially go through the trash. Well, he's hoping they find it very soon. Angus Randall is our reporter. Looking at that uh, missing radioactive material there in Wyala, the second such story that we've covered uh, this year. Angus, thanks so much for speaking to Australia Wide. No worries. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. And you are with me, Alex Hyman. It's great to have your company on this Friday. The Australian gold price hit an all-time record high yesterday at $3,097 an ounce. This price spike is being put down to conflict between Israel and Palestine, with investors flocking to gold as a safe haven for their finances. Consultant Dr Sandra Close from Sorbiton Associates says the rise has also seen the value of some Australian-based gold miners rally on the stock market. Yes, indeed. On Thursday, the Aussie gold price hit an absolute record in Australian dollar terms. It's been climbing upwards, backwards and forwards, but uh, uh, on Thursday, a record of $3,086 per troy ounce, but it went even higher just in uh, short-term trading, up to actually $3,097 per troy ounce for a little while. So that's uh, a pretty big number. It's not a record so much in the US dollar price as the Aussie price because our exchange rate against the US dollar is relatively low. 
at the moment. So what did it get to just out of interest in US dollars, Sandra? US dollars, well, look, again, it's a difficult thing because um, it was about uh, 1,920 or so uh, yesterday, but it's a very movable number, of course. So we're looking around the uh, a little over the 1,900 US dollar rise, but given the situation overseas and particularly in the Middle East, every day you're never quite sure what will happen next. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's been a couple of weeks now where this price has been rising. So what, what's the reasoning behind it? Well, more than anything, it's uncertainty. And I must say, even then, the price last night uh, went a lot higher in US dollars, so up to about 1960. And uh, I'll wait and see what happens uh, as we see the numbers come out more definitively on Friday. But really, it's uncertainty. Uh, the sad and difficult situation in the Middle East at the moment, uh, it reminds me rather of the 2012-2014 situation in the Middle East and the uncertainty of that is really, I think, moving the market at the moment. So as you mentioned, it's it's not fundamentals, it's not supply and demand. It, it really is this conflict between Israel and Palestine over the Gaza Strip that's causing this spike. So, I mean, how long will this price stick around for? Will it go higher? What can you expect? Therein lies the question. One can never predict the future. And I think the question is whether it's confined to a couple of countries or whether, it, in fact, it spreads a lot further and uh, is a far more difficult situation for the world to handle. But you cannot predict the future, either in respect of just the gold price alone or indeed the whole uh, social, financial market situation that we all face. That's consultant Dr Sandra Close from Surbiton Associates speaking with Tara de Langraft. Let's head to Queensland now. There are around 9,000 foster carers in the country, but with more than 46,000 children in out-of-home care, there's a need for more. Cameron and Emma Court have been foster carers for around 12 months. The young couple live on the Gold Coast hinterland and they are hoping more younger families will also consider fostering. The couple shared their story with Gold Coast reporter Dominic Cansdale. It has its rewards. It's always nice when you know kids. Uh, kids will be going to bed and they'll they'll sort of call out for you and they'll they'll want you to give them a hug because they you know they feel safe and in your place and they they get used to your comfort. Cameron Cord is one of around nine thousand foster carers in Australia. So my mum was adopted and that was sort of the reason why I sort of thought you know she was given a chance or someone took her in and, and you know she was able to do something with her life. For the past 12 months, Cameron and his wife Emma have been opening their doors to kids in need. We've had some really good experiences so far. Um, our first placement was only a weekend placement and so it was a nice easy transition and he was very quiet, attached to his technology mm-hmm. and so he sort of just chilled and did his own thing and he left feeling happy that he could just spend a lot of time on his iPad. Other cases are more challenging. If they're emergency, they usually have been removed from a situation and they they usually can be quite closed off and, and very shy. But there's a big need for more carers like Cameron and Emma. Oh, there's a, an ever-increasing demand uh, for foster carers. Amy Newman is the group manager of Anglicare Southern Queensland. We support 
around 1,000 foster and kinship carers and 2,000 children in care. The not-for-profit runs training programs and support services for foster carers. I think that foster and kinship carers experience uh, the sometimes the emotional um, grief and loss that children and young people experience. Um, it can be really challenging being in that foster and kinship carer, that care caregiver space. Uh, 24-7. There's, you know, sometimes there's a few challenges in navigating the needs of children and young people that you're a foster carer for and then sometimes your own family. According to Commonwealth figures, there are about 46,000 children and young people in out-of-home care and it's for a variety of reasons. The parenting journey uh, for anybody can be really tough. Um, It can be really difficult. However, uh, the the reasons that children and young people tend to come into care is due to some sort of abuse, so neglect, um, sexual harm, emotional harm, physical harm. To become an accredited foster carer with the state government, applicants have to undergo background checks, training, interviews and even checks on whether their households are suitable. It's been a learning curve for Cameron Court. Some of the challenges are around like how you, how you can look after them and the, some of the limitations you have and the guidelines and the framework you have to mm-hmm. sort of stay between. So like, you know, kids that are stopping a kid by actually grabbing onto their shirt and stopping them, you can really only do something like that if they're running, like nearly going to run across a road. Like how you would deal with a kid's behaviour and stuff is like very different to how you would deal with it if it was your own kid. But foster caring has been a worthwhile experience for Emma Court, who says more younger families should think about it. We had a girl recently come through and she even... We're still in contact to her today, with her today and we definitely got her at a time where she was really struggling and she had a lot of you know, things going on and you can see that in some of her behaviours at home and at school. I think towards the end when she left us, we had her in a great routine and we could see her processing things in a more healthy way. We had some like nights where we would chat for hours about you know, what she could do in her life talking to her about how she could better navigate her own life so she can get to the path where she wanted to go. And I hope that she just remembers those conversations and remembers, you know, what she wants to do and keeps that in mind, even if she does find herself in a tough situation again. That story there from Dominic Cansdale on the Gold Coast. You're listening to Australia Wide. On ABC Radio. Around the country, more women are picking up the tools and becoming tradies. However, representation of culturally diverse women in construction remains low. But in the Hunter Valley, a new program is bringing migrant and refugee women into the construction industry, teaching them the tricks of the trade and helping them forge a new career. From Newcastle, reporter Larise Dixon has this story. When you think of a workshop, you might expect it to have a very blokey, macho atmosphere. But here in Ties Hill, there's a different group of construction workers on the tools and getting their white cards. I like physical jobs and handy jobs, and in Iran I didn't have this opportunity. It always was my dream to live in a free country, and now I'm here and free. (laughs) Newcastle is where Sayida Aliyari ended up. She was born and raised in Iran, where she studied a master's in marine biology. While her husband could get work as a university lecturer, she wasn't allowed to work. It was very difficult, for, especially for women, because women, they don't have some, you know, right. 
even in my own country, I was treated like a second citizen and I didn't like it. Actually, from the time I knew myself, I wanted to, you know, go from Iran to another country to be free. Sayida and her husband knew they needed to leave Iran, so they began looking for opportunities for him to get a visa. It took a bit of time, but eventually Sayida and her husband found their way to Newcastle and were able to get permanent residency. But once you make it here, what happens next? According to the latest census, there are over 11,000 young migrant and refugee women living in the Hunter region and the Central Coast. These women are hungry for a new life, but they often don't have the support networks and skills to find the type of work they want to do or to build the new identity they want. I have many refugee uh, friends here, especially Afghan, and unfortunately many of them, because they uh, don't have any education and they even they don't can't, you know, read and write in their own language, it's very difficult for them to communicate with other people. Someone who knows this feeling of migrating firsthand is Professor Temi Egbalakan, who works at the University of Newcastle. I moved to Newcastle in 2019, which is almost five years. And um, I'm a migrant myself. I left my hometown, my home country, Nigeria, in 2000 and probably 2005. It's been a long thing. It's been a long way, and I understand what it is to relocate and migrate from country to country. Temi had the lived experience of moving from country to country. But it was only after getting to Newcastle that she realised there was this vacant space for women who had migrated as refugees. So it, it, it kind of dawned on me that though we're in developed country, Australia, but there are a lot of women who, whether directly or indirectly, have been left behind. They've been left behind, no money, no job. There's nobody to hold their hands and say, you can do it. So this is where I started thinking about it. I thought about it, that what can I do? As a woman who has been a migrant, I've not been a refugee, but I've been a migrant. And I understand the challenges of, you know, coming um, to a new country, starting all over, you know. Temi saw an opportunity for these women in a field you might not expect. So I started thinking, what can I do to help? So I started thinking, yeah, we have a big gap in construction. Post-COVID, there's a lot of money that's been pumped into this project. How can we help? And there's one area that has never been thought of. We have a lot of refugee women sitting at home doing nothing. Construction is probably not the field you'd imagine for refugee women to join. Temi reached out to TAFE New South Wales and together they created a brand new training program aimed specifically at young migrant and refugee women to help them learn the fundamentals of working in construction. So this is like basic entry level where they learn how to use um, tools, they learn they already have their white card. You get a white card means that you understand health and safety on construction sites, so they can visit construction site. Even as a labourer, they can start working in that space. They are learning carpentry, they are learning a bit of uh, plumbing, a bit of electrical. So what they're basically doing at the end of the day is to develop a skills or understand every bit of construction. This training is in line with how construction is changing as an industry. Female participation is steadily on the rise. At the same time, though, there's a low representation of called, culturally and linguistically diverse, women on the work site. Temi wants to see that change. We want to be able to tell our daughters that, oh, look at mum there, she's running her own business, from, you know, being a concreter to, you know, running a business in concreting. Saida is thriving on the physical nature of the work. 
a newfound passion in a way she wasn't fully expecting. For me, when I'm using the tools that we always see, the men are using these kind of tools, it's very enjoyable. And I think it gives me power, really. It, it's kind of that, see, I can do it. It's not difficult. That's Sarita Aliyari speaking to Newcastle reporter Larice Dixon. And finally here on Australia Wide, there's a new weapon in the fight against loneliness and isolation in Australia. But with four strings and a hollow body, it's not exactly the weapon you might have imagined. Across the country, ukulele clubs are taking off, as the simple stringed instrument gives many their first taste of playing music. Ukuleles were once thought of as a kid's toy, but now they've got thousands of Australians hooked. From North Queensland, reporter Jason Katsaris takes a look at what's behind the rise of the ukulele. There's a four-string revolution secretly taking over the country, one song at a time. Ukulele clubs have flourished in popularity in the last 15 years, with over 100 clubs now active across every state and territory. But unlike some music clubs, there's very little prerequisites to joining. What we're trying to to establish is embracing. It's a social um, community group. We don't charge anything. That's Coley Badalini. She's been playing ukulele around North Queensland for years. Every Tuesday, a rotating cast of around 50 players visit the local pub in Townsville and sing songs together. Each player brings their own ukulele, facing a projector showing songs, lyrics and chords. For a lot of the players here, the ukulele is their first and only instrument. But what is it about this small, unassuming instrument that draws people in? It's a very simple instrument. Starting price ukulele is about 30 bucks. And with a $30 ukulele and four, four chords that they teach the beginners, you can play 10,000 songs. There's really no limit to what you can play with a ukulele. That's Kent Dungable, a truck driver in Townsville turned uke enthusiast. Your body will release endorphins while you're singing, so you get this euphoria, and the gland that releases the endorphins doesn't understand good singing and bad singing. So no matter how bad you sing, you still get the hit. You're, you're guaranteed. Across town at another ukulele club, Rosie McAuliffe has been playing for a couple of years. After I retired from aged care uh, for 17 years for doing dementia, uh, I was sitting at home doing nothing and a friend suggested uh, playing a ukulele and joining, she knew I sang, and to join a singing group and they also learned to play the ukulele. I started that because I was home alone a uh, single mum and my daughter had just joined the Navy so I missed her a lot and couldn't see her through that with the COVID. She says she's found a community of friends through the ukulele club. If you're feeling down they'll pick you up you know and they're always they can see when you're having a bad day and they're all just loving and caring and I don't have family in Queensland at all, so they're my family. Cheryl Green, a ukulele enthusiast and mental health nurse, can relate. The South Australian co-authored an editorial on the benefits of the ukulele in the International Journal of Mental Health Nursing. She says ukulele clubs should be included in community health professionals' toolbox of treatment. And we know that connecting with people is good for us, good for our mental health, good for our self-esteem good for our sense of self, good for developing support so that if our mental health challenges become stronger, we've got a network of people and friends and family around us that 
helped to support us through tough times and helped to give us joy in the good times. Adelaide-based ukulele teacher Richard Tonkin has people visiting his family's hotel to play ukulele weekly, with ages ranging from 17 to 70. He says he's enjoyed teaching music to people who never thought they'd be able to play. Having fun is sort of intrinsic to the nature of the instrument. You can pass on musical knowledge very quickly on a simple instrument and um, people get it and they can get the songs and get all the chords. They feel really empowered. I really think that it's uh, it's something that for a lot of people they, they thought that they would not be able to do beforehand. I think for a lot of people who have retired, it's, a, it's an amazing thing for them because you know, when they've been working all their lives and they've been looking around for a hobby afterwards and the people go out and find a ukulele and they've never played music in their lives they, they, and they sit down and they can do it. And it's, I really think it's actually something very meaningful in their, their lives. That's ukulele teacher Richard Tonkin ending that story from Jason Katsaris in North Queensland. And that is Australia Wide for this week. I'm Alex Hyman. Hope you can join me again on Monday. Have a wonderful weekend. Cheerio. ABC Listen.